We'll be reading this morning from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. It is once again the first Sunday of the month, and so we turn to our ongoing study of the church. Last month, we looked at the origin of the word church and the nature of this institution that is comprised of those who have been gathered to Christ. But this morning, we turn our attention to the work of the deacon. Now, you might ask why I chose to address deacons first rather than elders. And in part, the answer is because in much of American evangelicalism, the role of elder had gotten lost in previous generations. In the churches I grew up in, there was the pastor and the deacons. And if you grew up in church, especially in Baptist churches, uh, this was likely the case for you as well. And so uh, in the ongoing reformation of the church in an attempt to get back to a scriptural basis for the church and and the organization of the church, we've returned uh, in many cases to uh, this role of having elders and deacons. And we're seeing a resurgence of this around America and various churches. And so we tend to talk a lot about elders because many of us didn't grow up with elders in the church. But I believe this has created a situation uh, in which we're speaking so much about elders introducing that concept to people that we maybe have uh, somewhat overlooked uh, re examining the office of deacon and describing it from a biblical position. So I thought it would be appropriate to begin here and to address the role of deacon early on in this series. As we did with the church last month, I want to begin by looking at the word deacon, where it comes from, and how it is used in the scripture and how we should understand it, especially as it relates to the office in the church. Uh, Now, much like our word baptism, the word deacon uh, is an English word that is a transliteration of a Greek word. That means it's not really translated from the Greek uh, into its corresponding English word with the same meaning. Rather, the Greek word is simply written in English with the closest corresponding letters in our alphabet. Uh, The English transliteration only appears five times in our Bibles. Uh, in two passages, 
The first one is in Philippians 1, verse 1, as Paul introduces his letter to the church in Philippi. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So this is Paul's salutation, his introduction to the church there in Philippi, and we can see that in his mind the church is comprised of three groups of people, the members, the saints who are in the church, and two offices, that of bishop and deacon. Now, bishop is the Greek word episkopos, which means overseer, and this is where we get our English word episcopal or episcopalianism, so you could think of the episcopal church. But the word is used interchangeably throughout the New Testament, along with presbyteros, which means and is usually translated as elders, but that's where we get our English word Presbyterian, and also the Greek word poimen, which means shepherd, and is where we get pastors. So pastor, elder, bishop, they're all used interchangeably. They have different ranges of meaning, but they're applied to the same office in the church. The other office that is put alongside the bishops or elders here is that of deacons. Now, since there are only these two offices in the church, we should have some concern to try and understand what this office is and what these officers are to do in the church. But the only other place the word deacon is used in our English Bibles is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul gives the qualifications for the office of deacon. Now, that would make it appear as if we don't really have a lot to go on when we start examining uh, the role of the deacon. But the Greek word that is translated or transliterated as deacon is diakonos. It actually appears 31 times in the New Testament. Its various declensions appear another 71 times. So there's 102 uses in the New Testament of this word group. So we might ask ourselves, well, why is it transliterated five times as deacon and then translated the other 97 times? Why? And when it is translated, how is it translated? Well, the reason for this is because it's a fairly common Greek word with a range of meaning that can be applied outside uh, simply the office that is established in the church. But all these other uses of it throughout the New Testament can help us understand what the word means and shed some light on uh, the role of deacon. So let's survey some of these uses briefly. Uh, the, The word is translated as administration three times, Uh, relief once, and distribution once. Now, if you were paying attention, you might make the connection that the translation of distribution is actually in our text this morning uh, here in Acts 6, verse 1. Now, in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. There's our word, diakonos. Now, later in the book, in chapter 11, it is translated as relief. And in that passage, it is referring to the collection that the Apostle Paul was gathering from various churches around the Roman world to take back uh, to help relieve the poor saints in Judea who were suffering from persecution and famine. 
It's the same idea. It's the distribution of resources, particularly food, to those who are in need. Now, three times in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses the word again in reference to that collection that he is gathering, and there it is translated as the administration of the gift. So aside from those three kind of unique uses, the word diakonos and its derivatives are only translated in two ways throughout the New Testament. You've probably heard that the word means servant, that the deacon is a servant, and it is translated that way, a servant, serve, or service, a total of 28 times. But the other translation, the way it is translated most often, is for 64 times the word is translated as minister or ministry. What's interesting is how the word is used and who it's applied to when it is translated this way. Uh, You'll see uh, several passages that come up often when people begin to speak about the office of deacon. And one of those uh, will be those who want to argue that women can serve in the office of deacon in the church. And so they will mention Phoebe in the book of Romans. Romans 16.1, Paul writes and says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sinchera. Now, there's our word. It's translated servant. And those who argue in favor of women deacons say it could just as easily be translated deacon in this passage. The problem with that is, is that there are a number of other people throughout the New Testament who are spoken of in the same way who are clearly not serving in the office of deacon in the church. Among them are Paul, Timothy, Apollos, Epaphras, Tychicus, and Christ himself is at one point said to be a diakonos, a servant. No one argues that any of these men held the office of deacon in the church. Timothy is referred to this way multiple times by the Apostle Paul. The same word is actually applied at one point to demons, believe it or not. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes and says, For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, diakonos, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. Now, this certainly does not mean that demons were serving in the office of deacon in the churches. But do you see what it does mean? It means that the word is used in such a way that it can even be applied to these fallen demons who serve and assist Satan in his work. They are his deacons, his ministers, or we might think his assistants. They are assisting him. And and that's the primary meaning of the word. Even in the cases where it is translated as servant, we could think of the servant as one who assists and does the will of another. John 12, 26, Christ speaking says, If any man serve me, diakonos, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant, diakonos, be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. 
Now you can see uh, that the servant is going to be honored by the father. And so this is not a case of of menial slavery or someone that's a second-class sort of citizen. This is an honored and valued assistant uh, who has faithfully done the will of his Lord. In his book, On the Office of Deacon, Alexander Strauch defines the word to mean this, one who carries out the will of another or a task on behalf of another. In many contexts, the idea is that of a subordinate carrying out an assignment on a superior's behalf and having full authority to execute the superior's delegated task. So we could think of the deacon as a sort of deputy, Uh, whom authority has been delegated to for a specific purpose. So when Paul refers to Timothy, Epaphras, or Tychicus, and others as diakonos, he means that they are his apostolic assistants. He has deputized them to go to the churches and fulfill certain tasks. When he refers to himself as a diakonos, he means that he has been appointed or deputized by Christ with the task of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5, But our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers, diakonos, of the new covenant. God had appointed Paul as a diakonos, as as a, a deputy, a minister of the new covenant. Christ, we are told, has been sent by the Father as a diakonos of the truth in Romans 15.8. And the civil government has been established by God with delegated authority as a minister or a deacon of wrath in Romans 13.4. For he is God's minister, diakonos, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now in our text this morning, uh, the situation is unique because the apostles are involved, but the apostles here are setting the pattern for the later office of elder that will be established in the church. And in verse 4, they are said to be diakonos of the word, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry, there's our word diakonos, of the word. In his first letter to the church in Thessalonica, Paul says that he, quote, sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Timothy is a minister of the gospel. He is laboring in the gospel with Paul. He is a diakonos of the gospel. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul instructs this young minister and says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister, diakonos, of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. He's not saying that Timothy is a deacon in the church. He's a minister of the gospel, a minister of Christ. So these passages set the example for the office of elder. The elders are those who have been called by Jesus Christ to serve as his deacons of the word. So if the civil magistrate is the deacon of wrath and the elder is the deacon of the word, what is the deacon the deacon of? Well, I think our passage here in Acts sheds some light on that. It's never officially uh, called a deacon here in, in Acts, but uh, six of these five men, or sorry, there's seven men that are appointed here, 
Uh, five of these men are never mentioned again in the scriptures, uh, or four of them. Most scholars agree that these are the first appointed deacons. Irenaeus identified Stephen as the first deacon in his work against heresies, which was written sometime in the late second century. And, and that's been the majority opinion of the church ever since, that what we're looking at here in Acts 6, 1 through 7, is the first instance uh, of the office of deacon being established. And I believe this passage has much to teach us about the role of the deacon in the church. So let's begin this way, by assessing the problem that existed that led to the creation of the office of deacon. And we can see the problem in verses 1 and 2. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So in those days, what days are those? Well, these are the days of the early church shortly after Pentecost. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem during the Feast of Weeks. That's the 50th day after the Passover. Pentecost means 50th. So the Holy Spirit is poured out in great power. Peter preaches a sermon on Pentecost, and 3,000 people get saved. And so the church in Jerusalem is born. More are added to the church daily after that. And the believers are all gathered in Jerusalem, where it tells us in Acts 2.42 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So the apostles are teaching them the scriptures, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So the church is gathered in Jerusalem. There's 3,000 plus people, more being added daily. The apostles are trying to teach the scriptures to thousands of people, provide fellowship, opportunities for communion, and prayer together. And the church continues to grow. And then... We get to chapter 6, and we have growing pains. This church is growing rapidly, 3,000 people in a single day. Can you imagine that? It's continued to grow. Many, if not most, of these people had come to Jerusalem for the feast. They weren't actually from Jerusalem. They heard the preaching of the gospel. They got saved. They're now members of the church in Jerusalem. They don't want to go home. They want to stay there and continue to learn from the apostles, continue to fellowship with other believers. Where are they going to live? Where are they going to sleep at night? How do you even begin to house that many people? When, where, and how do you gather that many people for worship, for fellowship, for the Lord's Supper? This would be an administrative challenge, to say the least. So the church has its hands full with these growing pains. They're trying to figure out how do we deal with this rapid growth that we have experienced? How do we care for everyone? How do we continue to disciple them and teach them all the things that Jesus commanded us? Many of them, remember, spoke different languages even. They've got a lot to figure out. In the midst of that, the second factor that comes into play is cultural conflict. 
there are three groups of people that comprise the church here in Jerusalem. There are those who are native to the region of Judea around Jerusalem. Those uh, Jews who are Israelites, who have grown up in that area, they speak Aramaic and Hebrew. They have held closely to the traditions of the past. They consider themselves to be Hebrews of Hebrews. They're better Hebrews than the other Jews who don't live in this area. This group is called the Hebrews in our text. The second group are those Jews who live outside the region but have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast. Now, they speak Greek as their primary language or some other language of whatever nation they're from, but they still observe the Jewish religion, uh, but they've kind of assimilated into Greek culture. These are the Hellenists. Uh, Again, Hellenist is a transliteration of a Greek word that's used to refer to anyone who is not natively Greek but has adopted the Greek culture and language. The Hellenization of the ancient world began during the time of Alexander the Great and continued until the whole known world spoke the Greek language and was familiar with Greek culture by the time of Christ. So this group of Jews grew up in other parts of the empire and they've made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They've heard the gospel. They want to stay there as part of the church but they're viewed by those who grew up natively in Judea and who speak Hebrew natively. Uh, They're viewed by that group as outsiders. The third group, which is less directly involved, though there is mention of them here, are those who are non-Jewish but have converted to Judaism. Uh, They may be Greeks or other nationalities who have had some encounter with Jews in the past in their native land and have converted to the religion of Judaism. They're called proselytes. And now they have come to Jerusalem to observe the feast. And while they're there, they hear Peter preaching and they get saved. They also need a place to stay. They're not native to Jerusalem. So these are the backgrounds of three different groups of people who have now all heard the preaching of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament, and they've trusted in Him for salvation. They've been made part of one body, the church, but there's cultural conflict now arising. The Hellenists begin to complain that the Hebrews are not equitably distributing to the Hellenistic widows. Now, what happens in in Judaism is a widow who has no family to care for her could go to the synagogue and they would provide for her needs. But as these people become Christians, the synagogues begin to exclude them. And so now these widows are in need and they're part of the church. And so the church begins to care for them. But the the Hellenists are saying, there are widows among us who are not being cared for. You can imagine there might be some conflict between these different cultures, languages, and backgrounds. They're trying to figure out how to house and feed thousands of people. So the Hellenists begin to complain. They begin to to try and get a message to the leadership of the church, to the apostles, saying, we've got a conflict here. Some of our widows are being neglected. Which leads us to the third factor, which is genuine need. These are widows who are in need. They're not getting fed. 
maybe not uh, being provided the resources they need to uh, rent a room to live in. In chapter 4, we see that as the apostles continued to preach the gospel, it said that nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. They distributed to each as anyone had need. But by chapter 6, the church has grown to the point that now there are some among them who are in need. They're being overlooked in the daily distribution, which, by the way, again, is our word diakonos. It is something that the apostles are doing. The apostles are distributing to those who are in need, but they're busy, and they don't know all these thousands of people. And the ones that they do know have access to them, speak the same language, and are making them aware of the needs of the Hebrew-speaking widows. But the Hellenistic widows maybe don't have that same connection to the apostles, and so they're getting overlooked and they're not being cared for. There's a genuine need in the church. Later, Paul will give Timothy directions on how to organize the ministry which widows to uh, include on a list of those who would receive aid from the church. But that's in 1 Timothy 5. It's much later. At this early stage in the life of the church, they're not that organized yet. And so some of these widows may not have a place to stay. They may not be getting three meals a day. They're falling through the cracks which is a result of the fourth factor that is at play here, and that is the apostles' limited attention. Look at verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So there are widows in need, but the apostles can only do so much. And they're convinced they shouldn't take their attention off teaching the word in order to care for these widows. Now, that's an amazing statement, given what James will later write. James 1, 27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, keep in mind, James's context as he writes this is the church. He's not talking about some nebulous group of orphans and widows out in the world that we don't know. He's talking about the church. But the apostles say we we can't lay aside our calling to teach the Word of God in order to make sure that everyone is fed, to serve tables. And there's our word diakonos again. And this is where we often get the idea of deacons as some sort of glorified waiter serving tables And that is definitely a part of it, but as we'll see, it is not the sum total. Ministering the Word was the calling of the apostles. Ministering to felt needs was also important, no question about that. But the apostles are clear about their calling. They have been called as ministers of the Word. That's their job, and they dare not ignore it. So something must be done to alleviate this problem. Now, bear in mind that the problem is not simply handing out benevolence. That's a part of it, but that's not the sum total. It's the administration of a growing church that is experiencing cultural conflict, and some among them are not being cared for. 
It's a matter of pure and undefiled religion, as James says. It's a matter of taking up the work of this pure religion and caring for people, administering the church's resources so that the apostles can focus on their calling as deacons of the word. It's a complex problem. Which brings us to the proposed solution to the problem in verses 3 and 4. After they have gathered the multitude, the congregation of the church together, the apostles say, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So their proposal was this. The congregation is to seek out uh, some people to assist the apostles uh, to take on this ministry of benevolence, of caring for those who are in need, so that the apostles can give themselves, dedicate their lives to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. I want us to notice some things about this proposal. First, the congregation is to seek out the right people. This means that they are to look diligently for them, to inspect their lives and to ascertain if they are the right people for this work. It's the same word that James uses in James 1.27 where he tells us to care for the orphans and the widows. He says we are to visit the orphans and the widows. That's the same word. It means to check in on them, to observe their situation, to know what their life is like and what their needs are. Paul and Barnabas do this in chapter 15 of Acts. They've gone on a missionary journey and planted churches. And then it says in chapter 15, verse 36, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. They're going to seek out the welfare of the churches. They're going to look into it diligently. So this is what the congregation is to do. They're to look into the lives of men in their midst to see how are they doing, to observe them, to know them, so that they can select the ones who meet the standards that the apostles set out for them. And here are the standards. Now remember, the immediate need is to care for widows, women whose husbands have passed away and they are in need. If if there was ever a time when women were going to serve as deacons in the church. This would be it, wouldn't it? But the apostles tell them to seek out seven men. Men are to fill the role of deacon. Secondly, they are to be men who have a good reputation. That is, men whose lives testify to and give evidence of their faith in Christ. Now, I'm going to throw another Greek word at you, and you're going to recognize it as soon as I say it. The word here for good reputation is the Greek word martreo. It's where we get our English word martyr. These men are to live lives that testify to their faith in Christ under intense pressure and difficult situations. Second, they are to be men who are full of the Holy Spirit. This is what their life testifies to, that they are godly men, concerned with the things of God, with the things of the Spirit, dependent upon Him in prayer, 
dependent upon his grace for their sanctification. These are not arrogant men full of themselves. They are full of the Spirit. They are seeking Christ's glory, not their own. They're gifted by the Spirit for the work of this ministry that they are being called to. Now, the elders, if you'll remember when, when we think about Paul's letter to Timothy or Titus as he describes the qualification for elder, it's all character qualities except one skill that's necessary. The elders must be able to teach. The qualifications for deacon do not list that. They don't have to be able to teach. Now, some of them do. Some of them evangelize and preach. But they don't have to be able to teach. But there is a skill that is required of deacons. Not only are they to be men who are of good reputation and who are full of the Holy Spirit, but they are also to be full of wisdom. Now, wisdom is the practical and godly application of knowledge. The deacons are to be skilled men, men who have wisdom because they are supposed to be problem solvers. They have to deal with administering the resources of a large and growing church. They have to solve the problem of cultural conflict among members of the church. There are groups in the church who are feeling tension and conflict with one another, complaining against each other, and the deacons have to resolve this. They have to bring peace to that situation. They have to make sure that no one in need falls through the cracks again. They have to be detail-oriented and capable. And notice that it says in verse 4, or at the end of verse 3, after it says that they are to have good reputation, be full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Over the business. It doesn't say that they will be the ones who are handing out every single loaf of bread to every single widow. They are to oversee the job, to make sure that it gets done. They have the authority to delegate the actual work to others, but they have to take responsibility for it. In fact, I would argue that they have a responsibility to delegate it. If pure and undefiled religion is caring for the orphans and widows in their distress, then there is some obligation among the leaders of the church to see to it that the members of the church are practicing true religion and caring for one another. So it would be the deacon's job to get members involved in this activity so that they can grow in their faith. They have to keep the peace and the unity in the body, seeing that those with physical needs have their needs met, seeing that the members of the church are doing the work of pure religion. They're to oversee all of this so that the apostles or the elders can dedicate themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Without the deacons doing their job, not only will the body not be properly cared for, not only will some of their physical needs not be met, but their spiritual care will falter as well because those who have been called to that task will have their attention divided between these two ministries. I trust you can see the application of this to our day. The deacons are ministers of mercy, caring for those who are in need, distributing the church's resources as necessary, solving problems and conflicts within the church, thinking about unity in the body, delegating tasks as needed. The deacons serve the body as ministers of mercy 
because they are ministering to our needs. Now, this involves benevolence to those who have financial needs. But beyond that, it means keeping the building and grounds taken care of and operational so that when we gather to worship, we have functioning restrooms, a clean sanctuary, a kitchen to prepare food in. Do you realize how much the appearance of this building affects your ability to worship? If we came in and the grass was unmowed and the bushes were overgrown, the bathrooms were dirty, the sanctuary smelled funny, do you think you'd have a difficult time getting your heart and your mind in a good place to worship God? It would affect your spirit in ways that we might not even think of. The work of the deacons is largely behind closed doors, unseen and often unnoticed, but it is supremely important to our life as a church. One author has called the deacons uh, the church's shock absorbers because they, they are to absorb the shock of these sorts of cultural conflicts. They're to work to maintain peace and unity in the body and help prepare us for worship. It's God's mercy that grants us the privilege of gathering as his people to worship him together as a family. And it is the work of deacons that makes that possible. Deacons are God's ministers of mercy. They assist the elders in caring for the people of God by attending to their physical needs. The elders are ministers of the word. The deacons are ministers of mercy. And notice how the church addressed this problem in their selection of men. They selected seven men, one of whom, Stephen, became the first Christian martyr. He lived up to the qualifications. Uh, Philip goes on to be known as an evangelist, uh, boldly speaking the gospel to Samaritans, to an Ethiopian eunuch, and to others. Of the other five men, only one is ever mentioned again. Nicholas, the proselyte is likely the one that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 as a heretic. Calvin tells us that the ancient writers do with great consent affirm that this Nicholas, which was one of the seven, is the same of whom John makes mention in the Revelation 2 verse 15, to wit, that he was an author of a filthy and wicked sect. Now this shows us some things. It shows us, first of all, that The church is not infallible. We may make mistakes in who we appoint. We can't see the heart as God does. But it also shows us that in the selection of deacons, the Spirit of God led this church to choose six men who were faithful to the end, two of whom were outstanding, Stephen the martyr and Philip the evangelist. We may not perfectly select who should serve in the office, but we can trust that the Spirit will lead His church to select those whom He has called to this ministry. And now we come to the results, the product of the proposed solution to this problem. Did it work? Did the appointment of deacons accomplish that which the apostles hoped and prayed that it would? The men were selected and then ordained in verse 6. It says, Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now, I take this to mean that even after the congregation nominated these men, that the apostles took time to pray over the selection before 
appointing them. Then they laid hands on them, which is the language of ordination. So these men became ministers of mercy, working alongside the apostles and later the elders to tend God's church. And the product of these two offices working together is nothing short of astonishing. Look at verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. There are three products of the work of the deacons and the elders together in this verse. First, we're told that the word of God spread. Now, this happened because the deacons, in doing their work, freed the apostles up to do theirs, to focus and devote themselves to the ministry of the word. But also, the deacons themselves played a role in the spread of the word of God. Stephen preaches a magnificent sermon in chapter 7 that ends in his martyrdom. Philip preaches to the Samaritans, evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8. The word of God spread, and that's the mission of the church, isn't it? When we get down to it, to proclaim the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ to all nations, to all men. That work gets done when the elders and the deacons work together to care for God's people. Because the deacons oversee and take care of the ministry of mercy, the elders are able to devote themselves to the ministry of the word. Second, as the word spread and was preached, the church grew even more. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The church had already been growing, but with good administration of its resources, care for the needs of the people, the freedom of the apostles to give themselves to prayer and teaching of the word, even more people came to faith. And finally, and I think most incredibly, it says a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That is an amazing statement. Think about this for a minute. The persecution that the early church suffered came primarily from the priests and the Pharisees of the Jewish religion. And once a bunch of Hellenists were appointed as deacons in the church, a bunch of Hebrews got saved. That's amazing. Not just Hebrews, but ones who had been enemies of the church previously. Most of this persecution had come from the priestly class and from the Pharisees. Remember what Jesus said in John 13, 35? By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. With deacons in place, the church functioning as it should, the love and care of the church for those who were in need in their midst became so obvious that the church's witness to the surrounding culture was without hypocrisy. It was a good witness, such that their enemies became brothers in Christ. During World War II, the Germans occupied the Netherlands and attempted to outlaw the office of deacon in the church. Now they did this because the deacons in the Dutch church in the Netherlands were uh, giving aid and protection to those that the Germans were trying to kill. In response to this outlawing of the office of deacon, the Dutch church held a general assembly and they issued the following statement. They said, Whoever touches the diaconate 
interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on the diaconia lays hands on worship. Germany rescinded their order against the office of deacon. Such is the importance of the deacon to the work of the church that Nazis back down and enemies become brothers. In the church, the elders serve as ministers of the word to care for the spiritual needs of God's people, and they are able to focus their attention on that task only if the deacons are doing the work of the ministry of mercy, caring for the physical needs of God's people. The ministry of the deacons serves the joy and the unity of the church. Cornelius Van Dam makes the point in his book uh, on the deacons that the deacons served or ministered at the table, right? They served tables, but not just by providing food to those who were hungry, but rather they gave fellowship to those who were marginalized. They gave them an assurance that they were part of the body of Christ. As we consider our life together as a church, if you serve as a deacon, I hope that this morning you have heard what your calling is as a minister of God's mercy to his people, to administer the church's resources, to delegate and oversee the work of caring for those who are in need, proactively seeking to safeguard the peace and unity of the church while freeing the elders to fulfill their calling as ministers of the word. And if you are not a deacon, I want to say two things to you this morning. First, if the deacons seek to delegate work to you, do it as to the Lord, knowing that it serves both the peace of the church and the mission of the church. If the deacons ask you to to work around the grounds or to clean the building or to prepare a meal for someone, to, to give to the benevolence fund, whatever it may be, they're fulfilling their ministry, right? They're attempting to get the body involved in caring for one another so that we can all practice pure and undefiled religion together. Secondly, for all of us, knowing what is involved in the office of deacon and how important it is to the work of the church, the peace of the church, and the fulfillment of the church's mission. We should all be moved to pray regularly for our deacons. They have a high calling from Christ as his ministers of mercy. So let us remember them in our prayers that they may be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and practical wisdom. And as the deacons serve alongside the elders, the people of God will be ministered to in their whole person, body and soul, physical needs and spiritual needs. And I I believe that this demonstrates for us the love of our Savior for his bride. Christ died for his people. He gave himself to be a sacrifice to redeem us from the curse of the law, to create the church that would be his people, his nation, his bride, would he go to such great lengths to redeem us and then leave us uncared for? No. He gives elders to his church to feed his people the spiritual bread of the word of God and to see to it that they are cared for in their spirit. And he gives deacons to feed the people 
to take care of their spiritual needs, to see to it that they are cared for in their body. And when the deacons put out a banner by the road welcoming us to worship, when they prepare a table for us to partake of communion together, when they work around the building or the grounds, when they keep the bills paid so that we have lights and air conditioning, this is the love of Christ to us as his people. They are his ministers of mercy, his hands and his feet, administering his love to his church. So let us be thankful that Christ has given to his church not only elders as ministers of the word, but deacons as ministers of mercy. Let's pray.